When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Katharina Gabrielson to talk about a book she co-edited with Kenny Coopers and Helena Metzen. The book is Neoliberalism on the Ground. Katharina is Associate Professor in Urban Theory and Docent in Architecture at KTH School of Architecture. Thank you very much for being here with me and talking with me. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Yes, um, I'm I'm trained as an architect. I do a bit of practice, but my main work nowadays is in academia, you can say. And um, I do, I have been doing quite a lot of research during the last 10 years and one of the outcomes is precisely this book that you that we're going to talk about today that I did co-edited together with my colleagues um, and um, well what else should I say uh, my research is pretty broad and I'm looking into I do a bit of sort of historiography but I'm really interested in history and how it puts it sort of uh, creates the present moment, so to speak. And uh, I always try to be take a very interdisciplinary approach and sort of think through architecture broadly, um, through engaging with um, recent philosophy, aesthetics, movements in the fine arts, and so on. Yeah, so yeah, I, I have sort of broad interests, you can say. I'm sure. currently working on, on filmmaking, in fact. And we'll get to that a little later. I want to hear more about that. So that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. And so the first question I'd like to start off with is probably a broad one you get asked a ton. What is neoliberalism? (laughs) Yeah, well, that's a good question. I think it's neoliberalism is, in fact, a very kind of slippery concept. And uh, it's even, you know, highly contested even in academia nowadays. And it tends to be used as a sort of bracket term for... um, in a, it's important to note that it's a critical concept. I mean, ordinarily, politicians who we would identify as being sort of starry-eyed neoliberal neoliberals would never identify as such themselves. <laughs> so it kind of derives from critical theory, critical urban discourse within academia, I would say. And um, basically, you could say it sort of works as an umbrella concept for what's been going on globally ever since sort of started in the 60s, um, 
sort of beginning to appear in the 70s, in particular in the UK and the USA, and then sort of brought into fruition in the 90s as a kind of broad um, political reorientation towards deregulations, uh, free markets, privatizations, and so on and so forth. So it's like the abandonment of the traditional model of the welfare state, I would say. Interesting. And so shorthand version of it. Uh, mm. A great definition. And so that's kind of the first topics I wanted to talk about. So the book is not necessarily this manifesto of architectural design based on that. In my mind, it's a little more focused on, you know, urban policy and architectural concepts. And so I was wondering if you could elaborate a little more. You know, I I understand that each case study is very unique, but there is sort of kind of an overall theme to all of these different case studies. Mm, yeah, we, I mean, <clears throat> neoliberalism, as I said, is a very sort of broad term um, that corresponds to, you could say, kind of late capitalism, the sort of state we find ourselves in today with global capitalism. And what we're interested in is to see how architecture and planning um, are sort of part of that huge ideological shift. Uh, and it means understanding architecture and planning, or in, especially architecture, in a broader sense than just identifying architecture with buildings or built objects. So we're also looking into architecture as a sort of a, as a discourse, as a way of presenting ideas, new ideals, uh, aesthetic reorientations and so on. So. We, we kind of approach architecture broadly in order to understand how it's somehow part of this ideological shift and not just representing it or adapting to it. So it, we're putting architecture in a very active mode, in fact. And I'd say that's one of the premises of our book is how we understand that architecture can work as a conceptual lens to capture minute shifts in society as they are ongoing. And then another premise for the book is something we pick up from critical urban theory uh, and thinkers like uh, Neil Brenner and Jamie Peck, who are social scientists and architects. Um, and it's basically to understand, to distinguish between neoliberalism as a sort of abstract idea and as a local and socially embedded practice, what they refer to as actually existing neoliberalism. And in that way, it becomes interesting to look at very different situations and societies and countries, in fact, and, and see how things operate sort of on the ground, so to speak, in local and embedded situations. Um, so those are the kind of premises for the book, and we, we believe that by looking at all these different moments as described in the case studies, um, we get a more sort of complex map of how this huge transition sort of occurs differently in different places, but at the same time inspired or united by similar ideas and how architecture and planning uh, collaborate in this transition. And so, as I've mentioned, you know, there's a lot of them are very unique. And one thing I have seen in quite a few of the case studies, however, is the the theme of economic collapse and it being used as an opportunity instead of just a tragedy. 
I was wondering if you could explain to us a little more kind of the, we'll say the connection between economic collapse and the opportunity for neoliberalism in urban policy. Mm, I'm not sh- quite sure what what um, this uh, term economic collapse, uh, I'm not sure where you picked that up from. Um, it might be the case of the case study from Argentina, perhaps. Uh, um, but it's... But it certainly sort of um, resonates with the idea that the traditional model of the welfare state is contested, critiqued, and eventually abandoned, you could say. Um, And how this, of course, um, and all these new sort of uh, neoliberal ideas and restructuring projects are put into place. And obviously, it does create a lot of new opportunities for architecture, and it um also one of the things that we focus on in the book is how it transforms the professional roles of architecture and how it creates new sort of new roles of urban designers and so on and so forth but it's not i mean our emphasis is not on the kind of new opportunities that are created because we um we obviously <laughs> take a very critical approach to this increasing domination of the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that we're also trying to claim is that architecture is in a way also a mode of resisting or or creating different kinds of realities than those defined by the market. But um, generally most of the most of the chapters is really on looking at how architecture becomes engaged in this process of social transformation, you can say. Mm. Right. I mean, um, yeah, I, I could go on, but I'll end oh, there. Mm. Oh, please. Uh, so, and so another thing I thought, you know, the uh, the origin of the book itself, it's hinted at in the beginning that it, it came about from a conference. And so mm. the, the question is, you know, not only just hearing more about the conference, but what initially led to this discussion being led? I, I personally have never heard of a lot of this. And so mm-hmm. what, what brought about the, you know, the conference and then the actual combination into this book? Mm-hmm. Is neoliberalism not a sort of a household word in, in, in the States? I would say not, but I can only speak really? for myself. Uh-huh. That's very interesting because in, I mean, in Sweden and I don't know, in France and in, in the UK, certainly it's, it's very much sort of, um, it's, it's a very common topic, uh, and one of the things that we decided early on was that we're not we're not really claiming that we're kind of um, advancing the discourse on neoliberalism per se, but our contribution is to look at how architecture and the built environment is part of this movement, because usually neoliberalism is sort of discussed in terms of. Um, social science and so on, and it seems to disregard how neoliberalism is sort of also something being shaped in the everyday. Um, but um, yeah, the background to the book, I mean, me and Helena Matson, we've been working on a research project about um, the role of architecture and planning in Sweden during the 70s and 80s. Um, which is a historical, historiographical project, research project. Uh, and the name for that project was architecture, the architecture of deregulations. So we um, made a call for an international conference. Um, I think it was in 2016. And uh, run that conference for two days. And some of the papers ended up as chapters in the book. 
And the other event was a session on that Heliana did together with Kenny Coopers in the Society of Architectural Historians Society, I think it's called in Europe. And they had a session on architecture and neoliberalism precisely. So those two events were the sort of original background to the book and we sourced the papers from there. And obviously it was a very long process and a lot of editing and uh, some some papers were transformed and some were dropped and some were you know new some new authors were added to it and so on so it was a long process but basically those two um conference conferences were, was the sort of origin for the book and we started in i think 2015 thinking about how we could do something together on this theme yeah, so it's always, a, I, I think it's difficult to understand unless you've been in this sort of business yourself, um, the kind of really long process behind the making of a book. Absolutely. Yes. So, I, yeah, and it came out in March 2020, so, so it was like a year ago, and we were planning to do some kind of launch, but then this whole pandemic coronavirus struck so we haven't yet been able to launch it but hopefully we will be able to do something about it quite soon very exciting and so as i said so again i can only speak for myself but i i personally neoliberalism is not a household word it's not something i personally was familiar with and so as much as i'd love mm -hmm. for us to go through every case study but in the interest of your time and our listeners time yeah. we won't be able to do that but I was wondering if, you know, we could start right on the very first one, the collapse of, so, of a social housing monument in France, the Palace on Mortgage. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could maybe walk us through that a little more, particularly the, you know, basically the broad concept of kind of explaining the theme of the book for, for me personally and anyone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, this first chapter is written by um, uh, Anne Kockelkorn, who is uh, a German architectural historian and scholar and a very sort of sharp thinker, I think. And uh, this, the chapter is uh, derived from her PhD that she finished a couple of years ago. And I think it's super interesting because she combines intensive anthropological fieldwork with a very kind of um, she, she engages uh, intensely with philosophy and architectural theory and wraps that up and sort of unfolding that with her own fieldwork in a way. So I think it's, her way of writing is very interesting. Um, and basically what the chapter is about is uh, the huge project uh, Abraxas by, designed by Ricardo Bofil in the 70s. Uh, for a new town on the outskirts of Paris. And at the time, uh, this, I think many of you might have um, know this project because it's very celebrated and it's got the spectacular architecture looking like sort of a take on the on a French uh, royal castle or something. And it's also served as a film set several locations. It's got this kind of dystopian, strange character to it. I think it, it appeared in the in uh, one of the films, um, The Hunger Games, for instance. <laughs> so it's this really scenographic and strange environment. But what she's looking at is how it was built as a celebration of di social diversity, uh, postmodern architecture, and um, the kind of uh, the idea of dwell the right for a dwelling for all, and so on. 
and how it, through transformations of the French policies for the housing market and through various shifts in the financial economy, um, during a period of a couple of years, it completely became sort of... Um, um, the, the inhabitants shifted, the middle class moved out, it, it was left as a sort of place of abandonment, abandonment and despair, you know, a, a sort of palace on decline, as she writes about it. And, um, and basically what she's pointing to is that this kind of radical shift in the housing policies and so on, and transforming the right for a dwelling into the obligation to partake in the housing market. Um, how this was an occurrence that came about through a very active intervention of the state. So in terms of uh, sort of as a reading of neoliberalism, it points to uh, the requirements that it was actually the state in many cases that took the lead in these transformations. It wasn't just a matter of the state stepping back from its former social responsibilities. It was a historical kind of transformation undertaken by the state precisely. So she does a particular reading of how neoliberalism comes about that falls back on the work of the French philosopher uh, Michel Foucault in particular. Um, and one of the things she points to is what she refers to as the tre tremendous disjunction between how this project by Bouffier was celebrated as an avant-garde piece of architecture, as a triumph of postmodernism, so to speak, including numerous publications and awards and so on, and the physical materiality of the building and in this state of decline, uh, and as supported by in its inhabitants who gradually became more and more sort of dispossessed and disenfranchised. So she's pointing at the disjunction between architecture as a symbol and as an image and as a real physical daily environment. I, I think I may be simplifying. Uh, she does some very refined takes on this, but I think it's a very dramatic story that is extremely well-researched and that it's interesting in the way she kind of, it's very interdiscipl interdisciplinary, but it's very interesting the way it's uh, based on her own prolonged inhabitation of this place. Absolutely. And, and thank you very much for that. And so, like I said, as much as I'd love to go through every case study, we just we won't be able to. No, no. And so you mentioned that, uh, you know, the process, of course, of getting a book published is quite a lengthy one. And so one thing I always like to end these uh, sessions with is, you know, since the book was, I won't say published, since the book's been finished, you know, what, what have you been working on? What's What projects have occupied your time since then? Mm. Um, well, actually, the book, that the project that I started with Ilana Matson um, that refers to the Swedish situation, um, that was the origin for this book, in fact. Um, we still have to write our book in Swedish. Uh, so we're still working on that. And that's based on Swedish case studies. And it's interesting because Sweden was celebrated for the world, worldwide for the sort of Swedish welfare state model um, that was incredibly quickly abandoned, in fact. And uh, now Sweden is one of the most neoliberal, neoliberal countries in the world. Um, so that 
Sweden is very far from being, um, <laughs> I, I would say Sweden is a pretty extreme country in that respect. Sure. But so we're still working on that Swedish book. And uh, besides that, yeah, I, I've got a new research project that's really looking into bureaucracy, but we've got, we're using film as, a, the idea is to use the camera as a research tool. So um, we're getting into sort of anthropological studies using the camera, which is pretty exciting, and I don't know much about it, but... So far, we've noticed that you certainly can't put people in front of a camera and expect them to tell things. You know what I mean? Is you have to tread very carefully. So, um, but that 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 research project is what we call in Sweden artistic research, um, which is a, a pretty big field in Swedish. So I'm collaborating with artists on that project. And that's the film project you hinted at earlier, correct? Exactly. Mm. And so I just just my own curious. So, uh, what? How is the? What is your thoughts on the format of that release? Is it going to be a, a video, and uh, whether it's the internet or release digitally, uh, almost like a, I guess a movie release. Yeah, like, <laughs> well, it's not going to be in cinema, you know, like that. Gotcha. No, um, no. It's, we're, the the idea is that it's going to be uh, like yeah. We we hope it's going to be one hour, and it's going to be about public art and the everyday environment and public space and the means and the and the and the conflicts in in that are kind of embedded in public art um so um i make all of that into an exciting and dramatic piece even though the the our material is our material is including um, policies and bureaucracy and so on. So it's an experiment altogether, but hopefully it's going to be uh, available uh, online. Yep. And we're collaborating with the associations that will help us put it online and distribute the project. And we've only just started. So in a couple of years' time, I'll let you know. Interesting. We we've never talked about a video on here, but perhaps in the future we can talk about it. Mm. No, I mean we have funding, so it's going to be a proper film. Even though m most of the kind of shooting is something we will do ourselves, but we also have funding to to you know we're going to write a script and we're going to employ actors and and so on. So it's going to be a mix of documentary material and and uh, fictional stuff. Very interesting. Well, can't wait to see it in a few years thanks so i want to thank you again for taking the time to uh, talk with me today thank you I'm, I'm very i'm very glad i had the occasion to talk about our book and i hope that people find their way to it yes yeah. absolutely and to everyone listening the book is neoliberalism on the ground and to all of our listeners thank you and have a great day mm, thank you